you do not have the option of thinking of Jesus as a highly respected teacher only. He didn't leave that option open. When he declared himself to be God incarnate, he closed the option of just being a respected, insightful, wise teacher. Let's begin by reading these together. Now, as we read these, what I sometimes like to do is just sort of alert you for what to be on the lookout for, because if you sort of know ahead of a time what you're looking for, then you'll see it more clearly. So as we read through this story, what you want to be on the lookout for is the theme of binding, of seizing and binding and holding against one's will. And you want to look for who is being bound and who is not being bound. And you want to look for the disparity there. So that's what we're looking for. The, the uh, theme of this passage really is going to be the nature of the relationship between Jesus and his people and his people and Jesus. So as we're thinking along those terms, let's read our text now together, starting from verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed of Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at them, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Mark wants to take us here from one betrayal story to another, because we remember how the previous section ended. It ended with those ominous words, Judas, who would betray him. So he goes from the betrayal of Judas, which hasn't, of course, occurred yet, but is foretold for us. He goes from that betrayal to another betrayal of sorts. This is a betrayal, not of Judas, but this is a type of betrayal by his family. So who is this man, Jesus, that he is bringing to us this information about this man, Jesus, and why the the radically different reactions to him? The section really is masterfully put together to help us to see not only who this man Jesus is, but also to see just how Mark has put together this wonderful theme of the binding. Because you probably noticed as we read through there, that the story starts first with this idea that Jesus' family want to come and bind him or seize him. 
And then it cuts from there to the story of how the religious leaders believe that Jesus himself is bound. And then Jesus will answer that with the parables that are saying that, in effect, no, I'm not the one bound. I'm the one that's here to do the binding. And then from that, it goes back to the story of the family that has come to bind him and take him away. So in this unfolding of the story of those who are bound and those who are not bound, we go from one betrayal to another. And all of this is getting to the question of who is this man, Jesus? This, This man, Jesus, that is gathering such a radically different reaction from the people is something for us to think about this morning. What comes to my mind are the words of C.S. Lewis. You may have, some of you may have read one of his more popular books called Mere Christianity. In that book, he talks about the trilemma of Jesus. Now, trilemma is not something that we often, we don't often use that word, but trilemma, we know what a dilemma is or a dilemma. A dilemma is just a difficult choice that must be made between two options, usually two unpleasant options. But two, two options, you got to make a choice between one of the two, and that's called a dilemma. Now, a trilemma is the same thing, you just throw in one more option. So Jesus' trilemma is this. Jesus forces us to choose between three options of who he is, who this man Jesus is. We only have three options to choose for. Lewis puts it this way, three L's. He is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And those are the only three options that are given to us. And the reason those are the only three options is because Jesus wanted it that way. So Jesus has declared to us on a number of occasions already, we're just in Mark chapter three, but already in chapter three, Jesus has declared to us in multiple occasions that he is the son of God. The gospel, of course, begins on that note. We hear the declaration of the father from the heavens above to say, this is my beloved son. But Jesus himself has declared to us his identity as the son of God. He declared it to us when he said that he has the authority to forgive sins. He declared it to us when he cleansed the lepers. We talked about in that passage, leprosy was a sentence from God upon the sinner. For a Jewish person to be a leper meant that they were under a sentence of condemnation from God for their sin. And so for Jesus to cleanse the leper is the same thing as him saying, I have the authority to remove this sentence. Furthermore, Jesus has declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus will go on to say many other things that put to us very plainly and very clearly his identity. He will say things like, before Abraham was, I am. And no Jewish person would have misunderstood that. Before Abraham was, I am, is a clear declaration of his identity as God. Then he will say other things like, Moses wrote about me, or he who has seen me has seen the Father, and many other things. So Jesus says to us very plainly and very clearly that he is God. Don't fall for this nonsense that you hear from History Channel, Discovery Channel, that kind of thing that says that Jesus never said that he was God. It was the the church that later on declared that he was God. Don't fall for that. Jesus declared all over the place that he is God. You just have to know how to look for it. So declaring that he is God makes Jesus either one of three things. First of all, he's a liar. He knows he's not God. He's making this up. He's just deceiving people. He is being deceptive. He's being despicably deceptive to deceive people into thinking that he's God. That's option one. Option two is he's a lunatic. He really does think he is God. And he's trying to convince other people that he is too because he himself believes it. So he's out of his mind. He's insane. C.S. Lewis, when he writes about this in his sort of tongue-in-cheek, dry British humor kind of thing, says that it would be tantamount to somebody believing that they're a poached egg. 
That would be sort of like Jesus thinking that he's God when he really isn't. So he's either a liar or a lunatic or, of course, option three, he really is who he says he is. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of heaven and he's the Lord of earth. Those are the only three options. You do not have the option of thinking of Jesus as a highly respected teacher only. He didn't leave that option open. When he declared himself to be God incarnate, he closed the option of just being a respected, insightful, wise teacher. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And it's interesting how we see those three interactions take place in our text today. So first of all, the lunatic reaction. That's what his family is kind of thinking right now. As we're going to get into the text in a few minutes, they come here thinking that he's out of his mind. He's a few marbles short of a full bag. You know, he's a few bricks short of a full load. He's, he's out of his mind. He's this person who has lost touch with reality and they are going to come to rescue him. Option two is liar. Those are who the scribes from Jerusalem that we'll look at next week. They come up from Jerusalem and they think that he is a demonically possessed liar here to deceive the people. And then, of course, there's the third reaction of Lord. The disciples whom Jesus called last week unto himself, those whom he desired, they're the ones who are at least in the process of beginning to see and believe him as Lord. So those three three views of Jesus, those three understandings of Jesus are the only options available to us. And that's what Mark is wrestling with now. And in doing so, he masterfully brings to us this story, these two stories into one. So let's just begin with the first one here from verse 20. Then he went home and the question will be to whose home? We don't know because we're not told. He went to home. We assume that that means in in, uh, Capernaum again. Maybe it was back to Peter's home. Maybe it was somebody else's home. Maybe it was none of the above because there is no article there. So literally, Mark says he went into home. That could also be translated from home to home. So maybe he is going from home to home. Maybe he's staying here, staying here, preaching there, preaching over there. Maybe, or maybe he's staying with Peter or James or John or somebody else. It really doesn't matter. He is now inside another dwelling. So this takes us back to the beginning of chapter two, when Jesus was in another dwelling, And that dwelling was also, like we're going to see today, full of people in Jesus' teaching. So he went home and the crowd gathered again. So here, once again, we see the crowd gathering together. So it seems that the crowd has sort of somewhat dispersed. So last week we saw that Jesus was being mobbed by the crowd and he separates himself from the crowd and goes up the mountain and he calls up the mountain unto himself What Mark says, those whom he desired, that's the birth of the church right there. He calls them, those whom he desires to himself. They go up the mountain. Jesus then separates himself from them and he creates the 12 apostles. And then Jesus gives that Sermon on the Mount teaching, which Mark doesn't include, but that was the occasion for the Sermon on the Mount uh, teaching, which probably I I would suspect took the whole day. So then after this day on the mountain of teaching his new disciples, these are not the disciples that have just come to be healed. They're not just the ones who are enthusiastic about his miraculous powers. They are being drawn by the Lord unto Jesus. So he calls those unto himself and they become his now first followers. He doesn't tell the larger crowd to go away. He's not done healing them, but he's nonetheless separated himself from them for a day. 
and he's given this teaching on the disciples or discipleship known as the Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes back down and the crowd has maybe sort of dispersed somewhat. Maybe some have gone into, into Capernaum to get some lunch or something to eat. Maybe some have gone and caught a few fish to get something to eat, but they're not far dispersed and they gather back together. And once again, they are mobbing him again so that, so that they come together again so that we're told that he could not even eat. Now, that is the most intrusive the crowd has been to date. So imagine a crowd that's so intrusive, so close, so mob-like, so chaotic, that he and his, and his now newly formed disciples are not able to even eat. What an interruption. What a staggering, staggeringly full day Jesus had from day to day. Jesus' schedule was staggeringly full. So he's being crowded by the mob. They're crowding around him once again to the point that he's not even able to eat. Last week, we saw that Jesus called the apostles unto himself, or he created the apostles, we were told, for the purpose of being with him. So now that we see the crowd is even interrupting Jesus's purpose for the apostles, because as Jesus formed them to be with him, a big part of being with someone is sharing table with him. So it's literally like the, the crowd is interrupting Jesus and his apostles now. So he's not even able to eat. You can just imagine the chaotic scene of the thing. Now, verse 21, and when his family heard it. Now, I know if you are in the King James this morning, your translation says, and his friends heard it. So which is it, family or friends? Well, literally what Mark says, those who were beside him. So it could be translated friends. It could be translated family. Uh, most of the time it's used to describe one who's, one's blood relations or one's kin relations. It, does, it could be translated friends, but we're going to go with family, and here's why. It becomes really clear that the same group in verse 21 is the group in verse 31 through 35. That's going to be really obvious when we look at those verses that we're talking about the same incident, the same house, the same occasion, the same group of people. Now, in verses 31 through 35, it's clearly described as his mother and his brothers. So Jesus's family come... And they, they come when they hear about it. Now, what was it that they heard about that caused them to leave? Probably Nazareth still. What was it that they heard that caused them to drop what they're doing and come? Mark doesn't tell us. He just uses the pronoun it when they heard about it. So we're left to wonder what the it is. Something that they heard about was so inquisitive to them, so upsetting for them, so disturbing for them that they have now left to come, as we're going to be told, to seize Jesus or to take him literally by force. So most commentators will take the view that what they heard about was the last thing that Mark said, which was that the crowd was so big and so, so cumbersome that they were not even able, able to eat. So most will take that view. And indeed, I, when I preached through Mark, I think back in uh, 2009, that's the view that I took there. But I don't think that that's what the, the it is that they heard about. As I really thought about this over the last couple of weeks, I, I think the it that they heard about, that they found so disturbing that they came to seize him over, was not the size of the crowd and the imposition of the crowd, but just the previous thing. Remember last week we talked about the creation of the apostles. And we talked about how this was an open rebuke against the leadership of Israel. The fact that Jesus created 12 apostles. Jesus was putting himself now in direct opposition to the leadership of Israel. By choosing 12 apostles, Jesus is making a public statement 
that the leadership, the religious leadership of Israel is apostate and it no longer works. And Jesus is now forming this new group of apostles, 12 in number, to specifically replace the the, uh, 12 tribes. So I think that's the thing that they heard about. And that was the step that was just one step too far. That was the thing that as Jesus' family heard about all this stuff was going on, they heard about the miracles, they heard about the healings, they heard about the teachings, they heard about him declaring himself the son, or I'm sorry, the Lord of the Sabbath. They heard about all these radical things that he was saying. Maybe they were concerned about this. We're told in John chapter 7 and verse 5 that Jesus' brothers are not believing in him at this point. So they're hearing about all this and maybe they're sort of following it closely, not quite sure what to make of this. But then when they hear that he has set himself up in opposition to the leadership of Israel, that was a step too far. And that's what caused them to come and now attempt to take Jesus by force, to seize him and to take him away. There's a parallel here in John chapter 9. Think of John chapter 9 with me of the man born blind. The man born blind, Jesus heals him. The Pharisees are coming and they're questioning him. Who did this? Who did this? And they come and they question the man's parents. And they say, who is it that healed your son? And you remember what they say? They say, ask him. He's he's an adult. He can answer for himself. And John tells us the reason that they said that was because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. So there's a parallel here, I think. I think Mary and Jesus' brothers right now, when Jesus has taken this step, now they're in danger of being put out of the synagogue. Now they're in danger of themselves because they're Jesus' family of now being at odds with the leadership of Israel. And this was a step too far. This is what has caused them to say, you know what? He has lost touch with reality now. He has had a nervous breakdown, to use a phrase that we never hear. Remember when that was used to be a daily phrase? Never hear that anymore. But he's had a nervous breakdown. He has lost grip of reality now. So they're going to come and we told, we're told that they heard about it and they went out to seize him. So when Mark says that they came to seize him, he means exactly what it sounds like he means because he uses a word there that uh, he's going to use quite frequently throughout the rest of his gospel. You've got a sort of a splattering in your, in your hand out there of how he's going to use that to talk about Jesus' arrest by the soldiers, Jesus' arrest by Herod. So clearly what he's saying here is that he came to seize Je- they came to seize Jesus by force. They came to take him against his will. They came to do what we might call in our modern vernacular uh, an involuntary committal. When someone today maybe is deemed to be harmful to themselves or harmful to others because of an unstable mental condition, they may be committed against their will. This is the same sort of thing. They hear about this thing that Jesus has said and the forming of the 12 apostles and they have said to themselves, we have got to go take control of him, bring him back here to Nazareth, let him just maybe get out of the crowds, let the dust settle and let's just regain a grasp on reality because we do not want to be seen in opposition to the religious to the religious leadership. Reminds us of Jesus' words that's going to come a little bit later, chapter 8 and verse 38 which is that same passage in which Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, they say you're all kinds of people. Who do you say that I am? You you are the Christ. Right after that is when Jesus will say, whoever's ashamed of me and my gospel, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them as well. 